As Steve Hartman would say, everybody has a story. John Namichai is no exception. The child of refugees, he guided himself into the world, jumping from planes, fighting in war, and realizing his own version of an NFL dream on the semi-pro football field. John did all this while trying to understand who he is and to connect with his ancient Camus heritage from Laos. This isn't the story of an NFL star or Navy SEAL, but rather a regular guy navigating through this complicated world. Hey, I mentioned my mom. It starts within their own family. It's not just the community, man. It's the families itself that are seeing the gifts of their children. You know, and I and I get it now. I'm older now, right? I can see her oh. being like, I was, you know, I, she didn't want to see me get hurt and all that stuff. I was like, man, you didn't let me, you know, like take off either. You know, you're so, and then like, then, then there's the, you know, saving face and all that stuff. It's like, well, you know, everybody's kids, a doctor and you're a fucking bodybuilder, you know? And it's, it's, <laughs> cool. But I, I feel like you hit the day on the head. It's like, you know, like, like, I feel like it was the whole concept of like, like oh, you know, don't just don't don't degrade the, the family name, right? And then like, right. I think personally for myself, I looked at my stepdad and I was like, you're not my last name. Like my mine mine died at the age of 26. Like my my real father died at like he was 26 years old is what I I think my sister told me. And I'm just like, like I'm 31. Yeah. Like I already outlived him. And it's like, what is our legacy? What is going to be you know the next goal for us? So I feel like. I, I feel like honestly, like you know, like like gosh, I I don't want to sound egotistical, but I always felt like man, my 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 whole family was in a different like we're a different mindset, different breed because like, you know, like we're not thinking about the limitations that's gonna hold us down. We're not thinking about like just because you're black or just because you're white, you're gonna be better than me. I'm gonna show you and I'm gonna prove it to you this day and right now, you know. So, but I feel like a lot of Laos people don't think like that because you know we're forced to be humble, right? We're forced to be like, hey, just shut up and just keep your head low. Yeah. You know? with their emotions so i always felt that type of animosity and anger and i'm like dude there's got to be a better way to do this like when is it going to be our time right and like i used to rock the number 42 because i used to tell people listen man i'm gonna be the asian jackie robinson you're gonna remember my number my name till to, to one day so that was like the stigma why i always wanted to play semi-pro because i knew when i talked to my coach he goes what number you want i was like i, I want jackie robinson's number so when i said that to him he knew what i meant because you know my whole thing about 42 is like man like uh, when I was in Afghanistan, I didn't, I forgot to mention this, that they gave me number 42 for a run that we had to do. It's called a 4.2 mile run. And it was an honor of Pat Tillman, right? Cause Pat Tillman were 42. Okay, so, yeah. Uh, yep. So like, um, yeah, like I didn't even, you know, and then I looked up the history about Pat Tillman. I was like, Oh, how did he die? Well, dude was an NFL athlete who became Ranger and he was killed by fraternization, which sucks, you know, but the, it was covered up for the longest time that no one wanted to say, yeah, dude, my bad. He got killed by all American people. Right. So like, so ever since then, like I've also told my wife, like, like, man, if we ever have kids and I'm passing on number 42 because 42 is such a significant number, you know. You're, you're passing on that encouragement, right? I mean, like, I mean, the, the future, I believe, is going to be bright. Like, like I said, you know, uh, John's daughter going to the Sea Kings in a couple months. Um, Congrats. And it's just having that support, right, John? I mean, you believe in your daughter. You're pushing her. You're encouraging her. And, you know, imagine if you did a 180. And you told her from the very beginning and she wanted to be a swimmer and she would have, you know, and you would have said, nah, you're wasting your time, this and that. I mean, I think her success has a lot to do with with your encouragement, man. You know, so it's like and the parents, I'm seeing that more, man. They're proud. 
we get we get messages, you know, from parents wanting to induct their ten year old wrestler into the Hall of Fame. You know, it's like, okay, okay, let's give it, let's give it a few more years. Well, man. Yeah, I, I love the support, I, though, man. I love it. You know, yeah. I, I, I think believe, yeah, I, times are changing. Yeah, I, de- I definitely do feel the times are changing better because of the, all the mental health awareness. I feel like what people don't really talk about is like the first generations, like who came in from Laos, they weren't given any, you know, fair treatment. Like I know the history of my stepdad was that like his, he, like, he was separated from his family. He got adopted by another family. And the only thing he knew was criticism. So how's he going to raise these kids with criticism, right? And like yeah. there's, there, there's a fine line with criticizing someone to really just mentally abusing them. You know, but it's up it's up to us as it is you break that cycle right so it's like with me and my kids man what if my kids play sports i'm cheering them on because i didn't get that right it's whereas yeah other the other school thought is well since i was criticized i'm gonna criticize but like man we gotta break that cycle we gotta you know like we gotta change that way of thinking or else we're never going to progress you know a, a, as a country a, as a nation as a people Right, hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of C Four Podcast Southeast Asian Athlete Achievement Through Adversity. My name is Coach Andetka. I am here with my co-host John Messina. We have an amazing guest today. Uh, can't wait to uh, introduce him. Um, by the way, if you haven't already, please uh, like, follow, comment, share, subscribe. You know, we're on Facebook, we're on YouTube, we're on Spotify, and uh, we just you know. Um, let's get it out there this is what we're doing we're trying to promote and tell stories of, of athletes that have you know that had gone through adversity right that's part of the, the name of the podcast is, is going through adversity and achieving something right some people may have an easy path um that the best stories are the ones of the athletes and the individuals that have somewhat of, 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 of a tougher path uh path right so um Without further ado, uh, I'm going to let my co-host, John, introduce our guest. Yeah, so before we introduce our guest, John, today, i got a few announcements, folks. First of all, shout out to the growing listenership in Seattle. Um, We're excited to have you on board. And with that, for you Seattle people, please be sure to support Sweet Rice Lao Thai Eats, two locations in Auburn and Tacoma, run by our good friend, Robert Saisana. He's helping us with a lot of things. Small businesses, we love you. Happy to give you shouts out, but please get out and support Sweet Rice, Lao Thai Eats if you're in the Seattle area ever. Um, also, we are sending a group of athletes to the SEA Games to represent Laos. These are Lao Americans, my daughter included. Um, yay. <laughs> yay. And it's going to be a historic event because we're bringing athletes in sports like swimming, right, where Laos to be honest, um, just doesn't have the facilities, the training, the budget to, to field the internationally competitive swim team. We're changing that. We're bringing a wrestler, Dawson Sihavong. We actually have a pipeline of other athletes that are coming on board. And unfortunately, it'll be a little too late to get them into this SEA Games probably. But we're going to continue this train. Very limited budget in Laos. So we do need some support from the Lao American community. There's a GoFundMe campaign that we just kicked off. You'll see it on the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame Facebook page. We just posted it on our our IG. There's a little video on the YouTube channel. We would appreciate any support because we are trying to make history and trying to elevate the profile of Laos in athletics. And that's what the mission of the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame is. So with that, we have a cool guest today, John. He played football in Kansas City. 
not with the Chiefs. He wasn't catching passes with Patrick Mahomes. He was with the Midwest <laughs> Titans, okay? So, um, you know, what we found is that, yes, it's great to have household names on here. We love interviewing Andre Sukumthot and the people that everybody knows. But there are some really cool, inspiring stories that everybody can relate to in what I'll call the more everyday athletes, the guy that lives up the street, right, or the person that you see at that grocery store. And that's what we have on today. He's a military veteran, served honorably in Afghanistan. Um, he's going to tell us his interesting story about how he was able to become a semi-pro football player, um, not a traditional path of going to high school, graduating college after playing and then doing it, completely self-made athlete here. So with that, we're going to introduce John. John, tell us who you are and start at the beginning with your ancestry from Laos. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for having me. I mean, again, like I've been messaging you guys, it's been a pleasure just to speak with you guys and uh, an honor to be a part of this elite group. Um, So quick story, my father, uh, you know, came here from Laos with my mom and my two older sisters who were born from Thailand. Um, The moment they came here, they were in Dallas, Texas, in some type of concentration camp from what my mom kind of kind of told me, didn't really speak much about it. But the moment I was born, we left Dallas, Texas, moved to Green Bay, Wisconsin. And by November oof, 16th, 26, 92, my father passed away and then my mom remarried. Um, so I didn't really get to know who my father was. And um, that kind of really didn't really affect me too much because there was a man who my mom remarried right away. So like it was less than, a, I think after doing the math, I realized it was less than a month. So I never knew that my father passed away. Um, the background behind that is um, I found out that with my dad, some of my uncles all helped during the Vietnam War. I know um, Tron kind of spoke around this too, about the secret war of Laos. So I don't really know the whole timeline itself, but when they got here to America, it was one of those things where they just didn't know the language, but for them to make themselves a part of this community and create their own community in Wisconsin was something that I feel like I should really kind of um, just want to say like I'm proud of because I grew up with my cousins a little bit. I'm full-blooded Kamut, and if a lot of people don't know what Kamut is, it's actually one of the indigenous languages to Laos. Now, Laos is something to me that um, I'd never had the chance to visit yet. I would love to go to Laos one day eventually because my mom actually before I – got taken out to about my whole football career and all that fun stuff. Um, my mom told me that I do have grandmas and grandpas and all that that still live in Laos. Never met them, you know, till this day, you know, so hopefully that's going to be something that uh, my wife and I can eventually do. But, you know, that's just a kind of quick synopsis of like history of my father and kind of my, like a little bit of my background right there. What what year was it um, that you guys came over? You, so you said 1992 was when your dad passed? Yep, 92 is when my dad passed. And like I said, I don't re- really recall when they, we came to America. I just know, like, when I was born, that was kind of like, you know, the timeline. But I believe my sister, she's four years older than me. So I think she came. So they came probably about, I want to say, 80, 1986, probably around somewhere around there. Yeah. Okay. And you you were born, your sister was born in Thailand. You were born in the States. Yep. So my bro, older brother, Simon, is actually the first. Uh, American born and then myself, John. So, you know, he was 90, 1990 and I was 91. Yeah. So your sister was most likely born in a refugee camp in Thailand. It's kind of the path that a lot of the people took out of Laos to the camp to, to the United States. Hey, hey, um, hey, John, t- tell us your, la- what is your last name? We didn't even like, we didn't, uh, <laughs> it's Nami Chai. Real. It's all good. It's Nami Chai. Yeah. Cause you know, in service we go by last name. So everyone just called me Chai. So it was pretty easy to say. So Nami Chai is the, how you say it though. So Nami Chai, is that your biological father's last name or is that your stepfather's last name? 
So Namichai is my biological father's last name. My stepfather's okay. last name was uh, Atavong. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Good. And you're saying your father served in the war. So was he part of like the Royal Lao Army? Is that um, so, he was with? This is, so this is the crazy part. So I do not even know what he did because like, so I don't know how to explain it. Cause like it, to me, it's like, it's so surreal. Like the moment he passed away, no one spoke to me about my father. Like there's like, so there's a whole 30 year gap of like, I don't even know who this man is. So like right now, my entire thing is, ever since I've been out the service is like, I'm trying to figure out who he was, you know, like, who is this man? Like, why did, why do I hear things of like, you know, Oh, you know, you look a lot like your father. I'm like, that's cool. Well, I never met him. So there's not much I can go off other than that, you know? Um, the only true like kind of like father figure I really had growing up other than my set that was my older brother like him and I were just always competitive about everything you know so I just want to give him a quick shout out because we have a this ongoing rivalry till this day of you know who's a better athlete and whatnot so <laughs> oh, that's good we might have to have him on to so he could tell his side of that story <laughs> <laughs> well hey so so you're you know you're born in the U.S. so tell us a little bit about your childhood I know you eventually moved to Kansas in there and so forth but just walk us through growing up so I could not even, you know, you know, fathom the fact of how much I didn't realize how, how big American football was in Green Bay, if that makes sense, right? I mean, you get the two most Hall of Fame quarterbacks to playing back-to-back years. And what really blew me away about that was I actually went to school with a lot of uh, some of the coaches' kids. Like, I went to school with Mike Sherman's son. His name was um, Rob, San- uh, Rob Sherman, and I went to school with uh, Rob Sander, his- and his dad was, like, the defensive head coach and all that. So I've had ties to, like, a lot of, like, football. So I'm um, kind of going off that. Like I had, I've always kind of enjoyed the sport. So the first sport my stepdad actually tried to get me into though was soccer, and he realized it wasn't for me because I kept on pushing people down the ground. You know, couldn't be physical. Didn't realize that. Um, so my first ever chance to play football was pee wee, and it was with Saint Saint Thomas Joe's, I believe Saint Thomas Joe's. Yeah, because I was in a middle school where we didn't have football. So somehow I just got picked up by a random street. I went to this one tryout, made the team, was really cool, and that was my first like actual real um experience to playing padded football i was 12 years old and then when i turned about 15 my i didn't even realize this but for three years my stepdad was gone i didn't like kind of know it because i'm not gonna lie i was kind of a bad kid growing up you know from the ages from zero to 12 i grew up with a lot of uncles and all that side and during those times you know in the old 90s and 80s everyone wants to be some type of gangbanger but you know you know that wasn't me though like I was more like kind of trying to stay in school because I knew what kind of path I wanted at the time but at the same time I really didn't know who I was because again you know culturally I believe growing up you know when you have a certain cultural background and you grow up with a certain group of people you become like that people if that makes sense right so I grew up with a lot of just athletes like I grew up with like with the, like the black Americans and like the Hispanic Americans and I've always been playing basketball football or something just from sunup to sundown type of ordeal so you know, my, my childhood was very unique in that essence because a lot of my uncles who were like top man to play the sports also like, you know, they weren't really great at school, but you know, they're great at other things, but uh, that was that. Um, as a little quick side on my eldest sister, or I'm sorry, my second oldest, her name is porn. She ended up getting a letter from like Bill Clinton because um, she was like, you know, one of those honorable things. Right. But she never put true. She never um, uh, went and seeked it farther than that, but you know, she's happy. She got two kids, a uh, husband and all that. So, yeah. That's cool. Oh, so, yeah. Sorry. Uh, quick thing. So what that was from there, my dad, my stepdad was gone. And then I moved to Kansas. 2008, I moved to Kansas. And uh, in 28, that's when they won the national championship. So, you know, I became a bad wagoner to KU. I'm not going to lie. Huh. 
Yeah. So, so you were playing football in Wisconsin, but uh, you know, um, youth football, high school football, what have you. But when you got to Kansas, you kind of had to hang up the helmet, right? From what we understand. Uh, yep. So <clears throat> sorry, I know I'm jumping around the timeline. So when I was about 12 years old, I got into playing padded football, but, um, basically when I was moving to, um, on with my life to go to Kansas, it was my freshman year where I actually was going to try out to play sports, you know, for school, because at the time when I was still in the uh, system, you know, the whole insurance thing that comes about with it was basically just saying that, you know, you can't play sport unless you're protected. Right. So for me, I didn't really understand what that was, but um, like for uh, even like high school, I was going to try out and I guess like something wasn't clearing with my records and all that with insurance wise issues and all those other crazy things that I didn't really get at the time because I was a kid. My mom didn't really explain to me, but then I go to find out just because I was a very small dude. Like I was about probably anywhere between five foot to five, five, about a hundred and like a hundred pounds. I didn't, I graduated high school at 130 pounds. So like realistic me playing football, well, everyone looked at me like, there's no way, no, there's no heck of a way this guy's going to ever play it. Right. Because my size myself, like I was small, but then like, I don't know, I felt like I was pretty feisty and I was pretty decent at what I played in, you know, position wise. Um, so when I moved to Kansas, what happened was, was basically they didn't even know who I was, nor like even I could speak English, like right away off the back when I got to Kansas, they stuck me in the ESL. So I was kind of annoyed about that because, you know, it wasn't even like, you know, like it wasn't even a simple conversation like, yo, you know, can you even speak English type thing? So I kind of played it off. I was like, whatever, if it's just going to be easier to, for me to graduate, I'm going to take the easy way out, right? Then about my senior year came around, and I was like, you know, this is this is crap. I don't want to. I don't want to just be handed something, you know. Like I wanted to make a name for myself, so I really tried to get on the football team. And the same thing came around. Hey, man, you don't have insurance, this and that. So I was like, all right, what the heck is this insurance, right? Didn't really get it. So I got a job at the age of 15 at KFC. You know, I started working full time, and by the time I was working full time, I couldn't really make it to practice and all that fun stuff. So. I felt like everything I've ever wanted that involved football or any type of sports, I always have some type of shortcoming, right? Because growing up the way that I did, like I am very humbled as a person um, before what my mom and them had to do to just to make ends meet. But like, I knew that like, if I ever had a wanted a chance to play on like some type of level of high school collegiate or something, I had to do something myself. So that kind of all then triggered me to join the military too. So, yeah. Okay. So going back, going back to timelines, it, you lived up in Green Bay to to what you were uh, how old? Uh, fifteen years old. Fifteen. So when you went to Kansas, you were like a freshman or sophomore. Sophomore. Okay, then you started high school. Okay, got you, got you. That's what and, I learned. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Um, I was gonna say like in, in Green Bay, you did play, did get play some type of football like pee wee or um, junior high, high school football. So that was. I think that was my eighth grade that I had a, like, it was just like, so one of my buddies, his name was Steven. He was like our best athlete in this uh, middle school. Like literally kid was uh, at the time, Steven was what, six, two running his 40, you know, his 50 yard dash was, he's running like a six, one, like the guy was like, you know, so he got picked up and he's like, Hey, I got a buddy. That's pretty good too. And that's how I kind of got involved, you know, playing peewee football. And then, okay. you know, yeah. So that's all that kind of happened, but that, it was, it was short lived. It was like less than like yeah. six games. <laughs> okay. So just a short lived career there. Yeah. All right, so you come up to the end of high school and you enlist, right, in the military. Um, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so 2010, right, um, Lawrence High just built their first, you know, stadium. I didn't even, like, I like till this day, you know, 
I didn't understand like the um, schooling, like 6A and all that, but Lawrence High was a 6A school, right? So um, that being said, like I knew I wanted to play with them, you know, my senior year, like that was just my dream. Like I, I got to get out there at least once, right? I wanted to touch the field. I wanted to be a, a Chester line. I think that's what they're called. Didn't happen. Didn't happen at all because basically what happened was I was working so much at KFC that like I became a team lead where basically I was doing some managerial work work and all that and stuff. And I had like, well, you know, a good team, but then I focused all my time, like as much as I wanted to play a sport, I really couldn't. So what happened then, you know, I was like, this is not going to happen. I got to find another way out. Well, I don't have the grades to get, you know, any type of scholarship. So what's the next best thing join the military. So that's how that route kind of went. Um, man, uh, shout out to Sergeant Danny Affelter. He's the one guy that got me and his mom. So basically how it happened was I got, I was going, I was going through some issues at school. I got in a fight. So, um, you know, I got in a fight and then the, um, my guidance counselor, she got me in touch with her, uh, her son. He's the one that was like, Hey man, why don't you just join the military type thing. Right. And then again, like I kind of mentioned you guys, senior year, I'm 130 pounds. My mom looked at me, then my eyes and was just like, you're not going to make it. You know, you're not going to make it. There's no way you're, you're way too small. You're too this. And that like, it was always just, you know, just, I couldn't play basketball. I couldn't play football. I couldn't play this. And just the, all those no's really driven me like, you know what? I'm so sick of people telling me, no, I can't do something. Let me just show you what I can do. Right. So it's kind of one of those moments. And then I signed up and, you know, on my way to Fort Benning, Georgia. And here's a funny kicker. I forgot that my older brother was joining the national guards. And like, literally when we're, I was getting like in process of maps and all that fun stuff. And I got a Fort Benning walking in, literally we walked past each other. And right when we walked past each other, we, you know, high five, Joe Sarnes stopped the line. They're like, looked at each other. Like, then they looked at us. They're like, you know, everyone was confused. I was confused too. I was like, oh, I forgot that he was in. <laughs> so that was that pretty cool moment. Um, you know, he uh, he like I said, man, he was a. I've always competed with him. Like he was like, hey man, my next step from National Guards, I'm gonna join the Airborne. I'm like, oh okay, I'm going to too then. You know, type thing. And then no crap. Um, BCT AIT did 16 weeks there, and all of a sudden they came up to him like, hey, I'm trying, man. You know, you're 18 years old. You're scoring a 290 on your PT test. Basically, at the time I was doing, it was, we were tested on push-ups, setups, and um, running. I was doing, in two minutes, I was able to complete like 71 push-up, which gave me a score of a, a raw score of 100. I did about 80 sit-ups. I was a raw score of 100, and I was running up 1330 two-mile time. So, you know, I myself, yeah, so like, I was like pretty pumped about that. And like, I didn't realize that I was the youngest guy in that group, also the only Asian person in that group. And then they were like, hey, by the way, like, just because you're scoring so high, do you want to try airborne school? I was like, what's that? You know, type thing. I'm like, do I, I need more years to my contract? Like, no, I'm like, cool, I'll do it. And then they're like, do you want to do RAS? I was like, what's RAS? They're like, well, it adds two years to your contract. And that's when I was like, mm, I didn't want to add more time to my contract yet, you know, because it was 2010. I didn't know what I really wanted in life other than to play sports. That's, that was all going through my head. So um, I turned on the RAS contract. And then, you know, I called up my brother. I was like, yo, did you make it airborne? He's like, nope. And I was like, cool, I did. So peace out, you know. Ended up in Alaska. So there was that. Fun so be before we keep going, for those that don't know what the Army Airborne Division is, maybe explain that. Yeah, sorry, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, so they are, so so I tell people um, the Airborne is like a, it's their own unit. So basically, it's kind of like a, a special unit and stuff because you got your regular soldiers who you know ended up somewhere in the states with the airborne unit man they're just ready to deploy at any time they're a, a significant group where like so it takes less than one percent to make it to the military they were less than less than one percent that's how the best way i can explain what an airborne unit really is um you know i was with the 425th airborne unit uh the 501st in uh, J-Bar, Alaska, which kind of is really interesting because they don't, I don't believe the 425th exists anymore in Alaska. I think we, uh, they got replaced. 
Um, kind of horrible. I don't really remember the history of that. So sorry about that. Um, but yeah. So and then if anyone wants to make it to the next level other than airborne, you would have to go ranger. So it's kind of like I would tell them it's like a stepping stone, but it's like high, you know, valedictorian status type thing. Okay. So it's kind of the next step before you get to the army ranger, which is the elite special forces. Um, and and you guys go ahead, Co. Real quick, airborne. You're jumping out of planes, right? That, that's what's the first thing that comes in my mind when I'm saying airborne. Pretty much, yep, yeah, yeah. So, so tell us about that. Tell us about the first time, because I've always like, like I've always wanted to skydive, but I, I never, but I don't. Okay, yeah, I, I do, but I don't. But it's like, so tell us about that jump. The first time you jumped out of an airplane. I think I, I think our listeners would like, you know, like how many of our listeners jump out of airplanes or skydive right so t- tell us about that experience and like did that did you have any fear was that exciting how was it um yeah so gosh i, I guess i've always been like a um a adrenaline junkie because i didn't really think much of it no like i remember how it happened was basically you have to so basically to qualify to graduate airborne so you have to do five successful jumps right so basically you're supposed to do two in the morning two at night and i think one full battle rattle and basically excuse me what happened was um uh Man, how do I describe that feeling? It's just so exhilarating. It's just like the moment there's a two second free fall feeling, and after the free fall feeling, it's a, all tandem. So like we're connected to the plane. So the moment you jump out, your shoot pulls right away. So it's kind of because you know the whole pro- uh, thing about airborne was we're supposed to be a special unit. If we can't make our ground unit get to where we need to be, you're going to jump in, right? And you're going to jump in quick. You're going to jump in fast, and you want to jump in less than ten seconds, right? But my very first jump, I can be a hundred percent honest and say. I pulled my reserve. <laughs> I pulled my reserve because there's one thing they tell you that what happens when you hit the plane. The moment you come out the plane, all this knots is pushing you, right? So if the plane's flying this way, you're flying out here. They tell you, do not turn quick because the moment you turn quick, you're going to smack the side of the plane, you know, knock yourself out. The moment I jumped, I didn't realize, but one of my arm was shifted up and one is flat. And what happens the moment I jumped, it pushed me and it spun me. So when it spun me, it's called a cigarette roll. If you don't feel your shoot pull in the first three seconds, they say, you're probably going to end up crashing and burning because they say two, right? So let, let me let me uh, kind of backtrack. They say two morning jumps, two night jumps. A lot of people will tell you all their jumps were night jumps, and no one got what they meant. What they were saying is that they would everyone would jump with their eyes closed, right? And you're just counting one Mississippi, two Mississippi, waiting for your shoot to pull. The moment I jumped, when I smacked that plane, I just remember that I spun. I didn't feel nothing pull, so I was afraid, like, I'm about to die off my first jump, right? So the moment I pulled my reserve, I just remember my buddy, hey, what are you doing? My reserve goes up. It smacks him. We collide each other. We both come crashing down. It was a bad, Oh, bad. my gosh. Yeah, I almost got kicked out. So, you know, that was my first jump. But ever since then, I was like, I'm not scared no more, you know. Oh, wow. Pretty cool. That's cool. Good story. Wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty, pretty cool. So anyway, you get through the Army Airborne training and all that, um, and then you get deployed, right? Right so away. Jump yep. into that. Uh, yep, 2010, 2011 comes around the corner. Less than a year, we get deployed straight to Afghanistan. So I don't know if I how can I can words, but I, if, I'm assuming a lot of people heard of Sergeant Bergdahl. Um, his uh, team leader, uh, squadron was actually my platoon sergeant. So uh, you know, shout out to all that craziness but um yeah so the unit i was with was with the fire first like i said um i know when i message you guys you guys kind of see something that says romeo that's actually my call sign it's uh tomahawk one six romeo was my call sign because my career in the military wasn't a normal career most people when they be when they you know come in as a private your thing is you you get assigned uh to a platoon and you have a squad leader a team leader right and all that fun stuff i actually my first actual memory of being in um active duty was I became an RTO less than a week. An RTO, what they 
base, uh, the acronym stands for the radio telephone operator. So my entire career in active duty was I actually was in charge of communications, like between um, my leadership and our a platoon to the talk or brigade and all that fun stuff. So like I really went in with two MOSs right off the back, not just 11 Bravo, one Papa, which is an airborne infantryman. I was also doing 25 um, Quebec work, which is like computer, or I'm sorry, uh, communications. So I don't know why they thought I, I was good at it, but for some reason they gave me the radio. I just knew how to plug it in and we were just, you know, moving forward with that. So I ended up in Afghanistan as an acting RTO. Sergeant Carinder was supposed to be Tomahawk. Man, I don't know if I'm giving any um, OPSEC, honestly, but uh, um, uh, Sergeant Carinder was supposed to be um, a Tomahawk 6 Romeo. But then some instances have happened during when we were uh, out there in Afghanistan where they were like, you know what, just let Namichai do. Namichai's doing a pretty good job anyway. So, man, my, I'm telling you guys, like, I, I don't even know how to explain, like, what my career was because it was not your typical, like, um, soldier's career. Um, I learned how to do TACSAC. TACSAC was basically a tactical satellite where I learned to shoot an azimuth to the um, to the satellite. And I had this little cool little gadget where I can talk to the talk if anything went down. Um, you know, so I think my proudest moment about all that is just that uh, literally communication went down. Like, and if we died, that was on my shoulder. So I think that responsibility really elevated me at a very young age because, you know, I deployed, we deployed on December 5th of 2011. No reason why I can memorize that date. It was my birthday. You know, the day we left, it was like, I was like, hey, by the, you know, like, why are you smiling, child? I was like, oh, it's my birthday, I'm turning 20. So there's that. Wow. So, right, I so know. go ahead, Co. So, so tell us about when you get to Afghanistan. You're 20 years old. It's, it's December. You're going probably from winter here in the U.S. to, I don't know, all I know is I'm, I'm guessing it was pretty hot there, right? So yeah. tell us about you know what it felt like to, to be there the you know did you the people that your surroundings what, what was the feeling when you got to you know okay wow i'm in a war zone yeah i mean gosh you know sorry i was smiling laughing because it's what you just said was the funniest thing so we're supposed to be known for cold weather training right like the ploys during the winter time because you know we're training in the middle of alaska just doing climbing mountains all this fun stuff right but when they deploy so you deploy us during the hottest summer so like we were you know first like two months like okay we gotta acclimate ourselves because this is not cool because the mm. unit that we were replacing they were from texas so we're like yeah you know like we we served during the winter time i'm like well that doesn't make any sense but hey you know whatever <laughs> Only tough, right so that was my kind of first uh like couple experiences with um you know just that and uh what i can say is that that's where um i met the man I met the coolest, like, superhero, Asian superhero I ever thought, right? Because his name was uh, Sergeant Van Cooth, or I'm sorry, Master Sergeant Van Cooth. This dude was Ranger tab, Airborne tab, and, like, just, like, a specimen. Like, I was so, like, just in awe of who he was as a person. I was like, dude, like, what, first of all, you know, my, my first couple of questions, like, what does it feel like to be, you know, a Ranger, Airborne tab, you know, a uh, person of color? And, like, what does it feel being Laos, you know? Like, because he, he approached me, um he approached me because saw me eating by myself and like i thought i was like at the wrong table type thing and then we just started talking and man i don't know like like uh, uh, till this day like i'm just i'm still envious of like mind blown of like what he's been through and i kind of wish that you know uh, i still kept in contact with him because i feel like his story is something that he should share to a lot of people yeah so just so the listeners know uh, you know, we interviewed a lao american navy seal there is a lao american that went through army ranger school that's who John is uh, referring to, and maybe one day we'll get him on the podcast. Uh, what what was his name again? Can you tell? What was his name again? Yeah, um, it's Master Sergeant Gon Von Kuth. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Von Kuth. 
So anyway, Johnny, I know um, when you were there in Afghanistan, you know, you were kind of involved in a, a, a bit of a firefight, right? Um, you had sent us the videos and a, a lot of action, of course, going on there. Um, we're glad you're okay. But if you're okay with it, tell us a little bit about that and the impact it had on you. Yeah. So, you know, I apologize if I'm jumping around. A lot of my memory is not as great as it used to be, too, by the way. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, I was trying to recall some. But, um, yeah, so the video I sent you guys was June 1st of 2012. Basically, what happened was there was, um, you know, the group we're fighting against, you know, ISIS and all that. But I forgot what we called them because at the time we weren't calling them ISIS, I believe. I think we were calling them, like, I don't, you know what that's saying? I don't know if it's OPSEC. So I don't know what, what I can say, so I'm not going to say what I know what we were fighting. But anyways, um, what basically happened was the I was actually coming back from um R and R. What R and R is, is you know, um, the military gives you time to you know while you're in war, war service uh, to kind of go back home to kind of debrief and make sure your mind's all right, right? So I was actually here in the states, um, getting ready to play in a football tournament, um, you know, and really just kind of hanging out. But what basically happened was on my flight back on June first, I got stopped at Bagram. So Bagram's kind of like you know our midpoint to from to america and all that fun stuff and then all of a sudden i just remember this you know command sergeant major and this lt coming up to us and goes like hey who's uh you know oh yeah i got a back there i got demoted out there i'll tell you guys that later but i got the model in afghanistan i'm gonna be real with y'all um okay <laughs> they keep up to me so who's a who's private child i was uh, like man and myself i forgot i got demoted so i was like who the heck is private child because at the time i thought i was so a specialist and i was like oh yeah that's me and then they came and grabbed me like, hey, you know, just going to give you a heads up. The FTF got, you know, um, the FOB got attacked. We're going to, you know, go ahead and just fly out of here. I'm like, oh, yeah, I was just all stunned. So um, some of the acronyms I threw out there. So FTF. So my platoon also got picked as to represent our brigade as a focus task force. So we were out there at a FOB. So know, a lot of times when you hear people talk about service, they'll talk about being at a cop or something like that. So the FOB, basically what it was, man, it was just like, you know, kind of saying like you're living the good life almost type thing. But it wasn't like a bougie, you know, deployment. You know, it was more like where the special forces stayed at, where like our Air Force base was at and all that stuff. You know, uh, I think I can talk about now because it's been taken over a long time ago since we're not back in Afghanistan, you know. But um, yeah, we flew back and I, man, I, I don't even know how to explain it. It just looked like something in a movie. We just were about to land. Everything was just gone. Like, it just looked like what it looked like, a bomb detonated and everything was destroyed. I just remember going to my platoon and my LT coming up to me. He's like, hey, man, uh, uh, code name Hedge is down. I'm like, and I was like bummed out. Hedge, uh, Hedge was a, a buddy of mine and we connected because Hedge uh, – was from Wisconsin and uh, we met during service, but basically just a quick story about him. He got his legs shot out by some, um, some AK rounds and whatnot. You know, he's still alive and kicking it. But uh, the craziest thing about this guy, man, anytime we talked about a mission, he, he, he loved music, loved music can do anything with his hands, play any instrument. Right. He looked at us and said, if I ever get shot, please let them shoot my legs. And you know, whatever you believe in it happened, he got shot in the legs and you know, the guy ended up retiring a lot sooner than he wanted to. But um, yeah, some of my experiences out there, I've, uh, I've been shot by sniper fire RPGs. I've been, you know, done a lot of clicks. We've done a lot of driving missions. Um, yeah, like I, I remember my uh, platoon sergeant giving me a M14 carbine too. Uh, and basically what that was, was just a sniper rifle, right? And they wanted me because I did what I kind of talked about being the radio guy. And I was part of the antenna farm. It was me, the FO, the ground force commander. They wanted someone that can do overwatch. So they gave me a sniper. So that was pretty cool. That was like one of my favorite experiences honestly so yeah yeah well 
tell us about okay go go back to the being demoted part yeah all right so i'm glad you asked because that's actually that right there i think was a turning point for my career where basically what happened was i I was getting ready with a, you know, the platoon. We were about to do a quick QRF. QRF just stands for a quick reaction force. There was an incident that was going on somewhere in the province. And we had to go, you know, out there and do what we needed to do. So basically we were out there for 72 hours straight, no sleep, no nothing. Right. I've been up and about just doing whatever I can do to make sure, you know, we come back alive, get back to base. My platoon sergeant and some other leadership out there decided, you know, like, Hey, let's put this guy in a tower. Maybe he can do a 24 hour watch after being up for 72 hours, you know, me not being great with numbers, knowing that, like, yo, look, I haven't slept for three days either, and you're going to stick me in this tower, I'm probably going to not be up the entire time, just a FYI type thing, right? So basically what happened was we come back to Fab Salerno, and um, I have to go check in at this talk and basically tell them, like, hey, I'm here to come help you guys guard, you know, our our Fab. And basically what happened was the people running the the show, they were all National Guard um, service members. Now, you know, I have respect for everyone and every service you do. But the reason I'm bluntly saying they were from the National Guard is they asked me, right, at the time, especially as I'm trying, they asked me, hey, do you know how to use a, a M240 car, M240? I was like, is it the Bravo or the Lima? So basically, it's do I know how to use this machine? And I'm like, okay. I felt like that was disrespectful because, like, yeah, I'm an infantry guy. How would I not, right? That was my eagle talking. And then they're like, well, well, can you just show us? I was like, okay. So I cleared the weapon and all that fun stuff, showed them I knew what I was doing. And the moment I looked down their site, the M45 site, I was like, you know, your site's backwards, right? Like, what are you talking about? Because anytime you look through a scope, small things are supposed to look bigger, right? When I looked through it, everything looked smaller. I was like, your site is backwards. They go, well, no, it's fine. We, we uh, used it and we, uh, we uh, you know, we, we um, zeroed in at the range. I'm like, you zeroed in your site backwards? So then the dude thought I was being snobby about it. And he's like, well, whatever. So he takes off the site, flips it around. Because there you're good. So then that really upset me. I was like, dude, listen, man, like I'm not trying to be, you know, a D-bag, but like I just got back from a 72 hour op. You're gonna stick me in this tower. If we get attacked, what am I supposed to shoot with? Like, just tell me that. Well, you know, if we get attacked, just spray and pray, right? That's what you kind of told me. So that really kind of like lit a fire on me. I was like, because I was just like, okay, dude, whatever. So basically, I was at the um this this tower. The tower I was protecting was a 24 hour surveillance, 24 seven surveillance airfield. Where literally there was like blimps and everything on. So basically, if, if where I would get attacked at, they would get the whole Air Force item. So, like in my brain, I'm like, why do you need me in this tower? Right. So that's what I was kind of going in my head. So, what I did was, gosh, I'm about to help myself. But uh, what I did was, I looked at, because they put you in a counterpart with one of the ANA, with one of the Afghan soldiers. I looked at the Afghan guy. I was like, can you speak English? He goes, yeah. So, what I asked them to do for me <laughs> got me demoted. I asked, I was like, listen, man, I haven't slept for almost three, four, four days. Can you, <laughs> when they call this radio, can you just say, yeah, we're here? He said, yeah, uh, good, buddy, good. I passed out. I woke up with a boot in my chest, and I was like, that uh, dude, I was like, oh, my goodness. It was a it was a mess. It was a hot mess. So that's uh, how I got promoted. <laughs> well, nice. Well, yeah, before we move back to your civilian life or anything else about your service um, you'd want to mention or? I do. I do. Even though I had that one bad incident, you know, I don't, one bad incident doesn't define who you are because I do yeah. care about my soldiers. I do care about everything that was going on in the moon. But it was just, I did not, I wanted to clarify that, like, that story is so significant and I wanted to share it because, like, man, like, I just felt like they didn't care about me because I'm not asking them to not, you know, put me in a tower. I'm asking you, like, understand where I'm coming from. I just came back from a three-day mission, literally no eat, no sleeping, not, like, lack of everything. Like, I get it. You're supposed to be tough. I was like, dude, there's only so much your human body can do. 
So me saying all that, like it really did affect me uh, mentally because, mm. you know, like I here I am like fast tracking as fast as I can, less than a year, almost becoming a sergeant in the army, you know, so like I felt like I was on the up and up. So when that reality check hit me, it humbled me. It humbled me so hard that, um, you know, I was able to leave, you know, still armily because though I had one instance, there's a lot of people who are probably E5s, E7s who are leading, who are probably your next leader, but that probably have, you know, more Article 15s than I did. But at the same time, like it was just... Article 15 is basically what they write up when, you know, it's, when it's a major deal. So, you know, and I, you know, I, till this day, like, you know, like it bugs me, like what I, like, like, how can I ever change myself? You know, like what could I have done better? You know, but then there's no answer I could have them other than, you know, admitting, cause I admitted to the man, I was like, Hey dude, like I'm asking you, please, I'm begging you replace me. Cause I think I'm going to pass out. There's no way I can stay awake. I've been up for way too long. You know, yeah. I just felt like when they didn't care, I didn't care. So I was like, that's kind of, that kind of happened. But yeah, that kind of broke me down and, I just had to say that because, you know, like I apologize to my leadership, you know, if I embarrass them, I apologize to, you know, my, to my platoon, if I embarrass them, because that, that weighed me down pretty hard, you know, because I felt like I was doing the best I can. The reason I'm trying to apologize because I know they're going to watch this podcast and be like, this dude, (laughs) I earned a nickname Sleepy Chai after that. So, I mean, Yeah. Hey man, you can make a drink out of that and be, you know, make some money. Call it like, <laughs> a, like, because it's like chai tea, right? Like, you yeah. know, sleepy chai. Man, that's a good name. We, my, John and I might have to steal that for yeah, that's right. <laughs> one of oh, our yeah. products. So the reason, so re- that's kind of funny you said it because the reason why the Afghan people did love me though, um, I told them my name was Chai, and they, that's all they drank. Oh, chai, chai, oh, good, yeah, very chai. good. They gave me yeah. the chai tea, so we connected. I was like, if I, you know, shoot, yeah, it was it was funny, man. It was just it was a different life. I can tell you that, man. But yeah, so the, my entire time. Oh yeah, so quick quick side note about that. When I was actually at that Bob, there was an incident where um um Sergeant Carrier, I kind of mentioned him. So he's part of the communication group, right? I can't really talk much of what, what they did because what they did is for you know up there in high class. But anyways, they they are what we would call poles, right? And like that's uh people other than grunts was the acronym, but you know, for people who don't want to be caught folks i apologize it wasn't my offense to you know because some people take offense to that but anyways sergeant carrier was not a an infantryman he was just a, a computer slash you know communication guy he actually was like hey man my group's about to play in this fight football match you want to join us so that's when i was like, oh football yeah i can still play again so i played in my first like uh flight football match out there and that's when a lot of people were like man this guy's pretty quick on his feet you know and then i met this lt he's like hey you ever played um uh, what the heck is that really popular sport in Australia and all that? Uh, rugby. rugby. Thank you, rugby. I can't think of it for some reason. So he was a uh, he was a uh, he, he was part of like the um, U.S. rugby team or something. I was like, what? Um, I have a picture of that too. But anyways, long story short, he was like, yeah, man, like you know, you're pretty good. Looks like you you know uh, catching, running the ball, moving the ball. Like you want to play rugby with us? I was like, mm-hmm, maybe. And I went to tell my you know my LT my LT, and I went to tell my like, hey, I got you know met these people that wanted me to play rugby. No, I didn't. I was like, dude, you're an amateur man. You can't do that. I was like, oh yeah, you're right. So. So, you know, that time in Afghanistan, the year was coming up, I believe around that time frame, right? Um, Bin Laden was finally, you know, taken out and it hit me. I was like, man, what am I going to do with my life other than being in the infantry? Because that's all I knew, right? Trained there for three years and all I knew was either how to talk on a radio or shoot a gun. So I was kind of like, there's no war after this. What am I going to do? So I was like, you know what? As much as I wanted to re-up, I decided to do the second best thing that was for me, and it was to join um, the reserves because they said, hey, if you join the reserves, you're still kind of in service, right? You still can kind of serve, but you have to come back to normal life, civilian life. 
Now, someone who only knows Army 365, you know, five days out the year, like, I didn't know what normal was anymore. You know, I come back home, back, you know, thinking, like, I'm some, like, huge hero because, you know, a lot of people don't know the stories of them, but, you know, like, the group that I was with knows what I did. You know, like, I felt like everyone owed me something. I felt like the world owed me everything at that moment, right? So when I came back and I was trying to come back to the civilian world, like, I didn't know what I was doing. I actually went into jail, like, my first, like, month back home you know wow so to talk on to talk on that like i was trying to enroll to the university of kansas right because i had the gi bill given to me for my honorable service and when i was trying to you know go to college at the time like first person in my whole family to ever you know try to join a university and all that so i was very proud of that didn't know what i was doing didn't know how to sign up didn't understand enrollment and all this fun stuff i remember going downtown to go pick up a buddy and when I was trying to pick up a buddy, I was wearing this Buddhist necklace, you know, on um, some dude that came up to me and said, hey, man, nice necklace. And he grabbed it. When he grabbed it, I grabbed his arm, you know, and I got knocked down. And when I got knocked down, I got a bunch of feet kicking me. That's all I can kind of, you know, remember. And then I just re uh, remember seeing a dude running who took my pendant of my of this Buddha pendant I had. I just remember I just jumped. Superman punched him. He fell. And the moment he fell, my necklace fell. I tried to grab it. Someone came running full speed trying to tackle me. Allegedly, it was a cop. Allegedly, I punched this cop. And there's a reason I'm using the word allegedly. Yeah, I understand. Then, uh, um, yeah, they booked me. And, you know, the moment they pepper sprayed me, dragged me down, you know, booked me. And I was uh, in the counter for a little bit. And less than a day, you know, they thankfully, man, thankfully for my service. And because they, when they were digging, you know, like searching me and all that stuff. They found my military um, uh, dog tags. They saw my my cat card and everything. They're like, oh, man, like, what's going on? So then that kind of saved me. I'm not going to lie. So, yeah. Didn't go to jail. Um, never, ne never, uh, not on the record. So the Buddha yeah. not the same there. <laughs> well, you know, Tron brought that up too, right? When you get out, um, your life is all structured in the military. You have a purpose. You have a mission. You come back. And a lot of people, frankly, it isn't. It's an adaptation. He said it. he sat there. He's Navy SEAL jumping out of planes, diving under the water. I mean, doing these incredible things. And now he was said he was sitting on his couch, right, watching TV. And and it's not easy, yeah. you know, especially what you guys went through. You know, you guys were in a lot of action and stuff too, um, over there. Yeah, I think um, that reality just really was one of the things because you know I I believe for myself like being at such a young age, right? I joined at eighteen, right? Like just a young yeah. kid. You know, getting out, I was probably. What I got back to a lot. I'm sorry. I got back to Kansas about 2014. So I was about 23, right? 23 years old. About yeah. to start. Um, man. So I just remember, I just remember, um, you know, finally getting accepted to KU, getting my letters, you know, congratulations, you're a J-Hop now, da, da, da. I was so proud of that. Right. And um, the entire time I was like, now, how does Nami Chai get to chance to play in football? Right. That's all I was thinking about. Cause at the end of this time, they were going through a whole new phase or new coaching staff and everything. And I was just like, all right, I think I know what I'm gonna do. I walked up to the, I walked up to the athletic office, like, hey, I want to play football. How do I do this? How do I become a walk-on? Right? The guy looks at me. Do you have any high school tapes? I was like, I've never played high school ball. And he said, well, I can't play you unless you have some type of tapes. And he goes, I looked at him. I was like, well, you know, like, what kind of tests do I need to do? He goes, well, I need you to do the forty. I need you to do a high jump. All this, right? And all that stuff. I was like, okay, well, you're physically talking to me. He's like, why won't you test me now? I'm ready. I can go right now, right? He goes, yeah, it doesn't work like that. I was like, okay. So 
really dubious on how to do anything, right? Because I I didn't really understand a lot. So I was like, okay, well, what's the next step? So during um what happened was I was while in service and while out of service, I was playing in Mung Flag football. So what Mung Flag football is, man, it is one of the greatest experience I ever had and truly the only true experience I had with football. And because of Mung Flag football, I was able to get into semi-pro. Um, but anyways, what Mung Flag football was all about you know, that right there and uh, what I'm wearing is we actually won last year's biggest tournament, our our Super Bowl. Um, Mung Flag Football is basically, it was concocted of two tournaments of Memorial Day and Labor Day in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and one in Minnesota. So this happens every year. And I've been doing this, playing this since I was about 15 years old. So um, what I didn't really mention is that while I was in service is that there were times where, I, you know, like when we had vacations, I would I would I would circulate all my vacations on those on those tournament dates. So I would fly down, yeah. play the tournaments, go back and do army stuff. Right. Okay. So that was pretty pretty fun on my end. So um, just to clarify, so you you say you your walk on attempt at KU was you know didn't work out, right? So you're you're back to kind of playing a little bit of mung flag football, right? Yeah. Um, is is what happened. Okay. Yeah. Um, we want to get into the mung flag football thing. Um, but let's first jump to, so, you know, to be honest, the semi-pro guys, right? Uh, the people that I know that played semi-pro are like Sam Pomachon. That's Tyson and Tyler's dad. Standout quarterback in high school, right? Um, David Bootsomsee, you know, guy got on the roster of a D1 football program, does this later. It's those kind of people. You having never even played high school football, Right. Just tell us how you how you tried out, how you got on the team, and what it was like. I mean, yeah. So the uh, the quick spell the HFL. The reason why I was supporting it was that I met. So I met one of the players from HFL who was on our team. His name was Jay Butch Power. Man, love you, Jay. Thank you for everything you did for me, man. But Jay just saw me like, man, like, dude, you can kind of ball, you know, like, you know, for you know the this the typical what the typical thing Asian people was like, hey, man, you can ball for an Asian dude. And I was like. And I looked at him and was like, man, I can ball more than just being an Asian dude. Like, that's, you know, that stigma really kind of rolled with me. But he didn't say it in a, in a mean demeanor. He was just saying, like, no, like, you're pretty good. Because I played with uh, Jay Butch Powell. I, I forgot what college I played with. But, you know, they have their fraternity that they always do with the the, the dog ter- uh, fraternity. Man, I, I, I feel so bad. I, I can't remember the name of it. Um, But, like, I played with uh, Derek. We call him uh, OU. Derek OU Bradley Jr. He actually played against Tim Tebow and them during, you know, Florida Super Bowl and all that. So, uh, I'm sorry, uh ncw championship so yeah like you said there was there was some like high talent out there yeah. you know like i'm talking about like i play with a lot of ou um the oklahoma players and all that and i just it was just a weird thing they were like hey man what's your experience i was like i played monk flag football you know and they're like what's that <laughs> you know <laughs> that was that was kind of my thing but like you know it was cool man they they treated me like how anyone else was you know a rookie comes in like hey man let's see what he kind of got you know my first ever successful thing i did on the field was on a on a uh, attempted punt, they had me, you know, playing special teams on the D line. I just somehow looked at the so the first time they punted, I heard the I heard the um, punter call call the ball on set, and I saw the ball move. So I was like, okay, he's probably gonna try to do that again the next fourth down. So when the coach put me back in, he did it, and I was right. I shot the gap perfectly. And the moment he was about to punt the ball, I jumped right because I've never played. I never played tackle. I didn't know what I was doing. The moment I jumped, I was like, oh no, this dude's about to kick me right in my, where my, you know, my, yeah. my thing. So I spun in the air somehow. The ball then kicks, hits my butt, and starts to roll. And when it rolls, it's rolling towards the, it's rolling towards the, the back of the end zone. And I just dive on it, and that was like the first experience I ever had. And my coach looked at me like, all right, this guy can play. <laughs> you you blocked the punt for a touchdown, your first play. 
first place. Nice. Yep. Wow. wow. Nice. So, yeah, so these semi-pro teams, is there a tryout to even get on? Yeah. Yeah, there is. There was a tryout. But I think um, at the time, Kansas was going through this whole ordeal where they're it was the Midwest Titans and the Casey Bulldogs, and the Casey Bulldogs are pretty well known in um, for the summer program because they won multiple championships. But yeah, I guess Butcher was just trying to recruit people because I think he was trying to recruit me because he was retiring or he was going to Vegas. Yeah. So that's how we kind of you know connected. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was just it was pretty cool because like like you kind of mentioned, like I think during the, my time frame, when I was 2015, 16 around there sometime. We played against the Oklahoma Thunders. I guess they said like, "Hey, this you know some cat on that team's like, oh, he just got cut from the Browns practice squad." I'm like, "What's that supposed to mean, right?" Dude, dude goes ahead and runs eighty. He scores. He scores. I think about ten touchdowns by himself. I'm like, "Oh, that's what they meant by that." <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the crazy thing about that. You got yeah, just shy of the NFL to guys like you right on the field together. Yeah, makes for a good a, a good time. Um, well, you know, Co and I kind of talked and. We've seen one of our friends invited us up to the J fourth tournament and all that. We, we haven't been able to make it. Um, but we see these huge monk sports leagues and we don't really have anything like that around here in the Chicago area that we live in. But um, you being from living in Wisconsin and that, and, and people in Minnesota have this, tell us about these cause they're really cool. Yeah. So, so I, I got to give a shout out to the monk community because you know, they, they are what I believe, aspirations meet diversity issues right because there's all these full of like amazing athletes that i feel like they they are short-sighted in essence like they feel like they can't make it just because you know they feel like oh we're not big enough we're not strong enough you know like i don't i you know i apologize i don't mean to speak that i'm uh on the monk community as in saying like i'm you know like, i understand but i like from what i've heard from teammates and people's like you know like I've always thought, like I've seen people play. I'm like, dude, man, you could probably make it to the college level, D1, and all that stuff. Like, why don't you, right? And like, I they, there was never been a solid answer. Um, again, like I started playing when I was about 14 years old because my brother and I and my cousin had our own team called the Green Bay Rockets. My brother was a 16 year old dude playing quarterback, and you know he took us to a couple championships. I'm not gonna lie, dude was pretty good. I'm I don't think he was that great, but he was good enough to make it to the championship game. Right? We're playing against grown men, 20 plus year old guys, and whatnot. And um, basically, you know, I ended up moving to Kansas. We kind of split. And that was significant because that's where I met my second team, the Kansas City Aftermath. And mm -hmm. those tournaments, man, it, it, the, to me, it was like match madness. It was like match madness, uh, madness within two days. Because there, like, there sometimes will be up to 30 teams and you have to finish all the games in two days, right? Saturdays and Sundays. That's how we kind of played. So we played a uh, double elimination was day one. And then the final, like, you know, 16 teams would make it to day two and then a single elimination. So that's how all the tournaments were kind of ran. The name behind Monk Flag Football, I, I really don't know the history other than that. I know like the book that we all base our rules off. It's called the, U, the Eau Claire, Wisconsin rule book. Mm -hmm. I know like one of the hosts in Wisconsin was uh, someone who was like an uncle to me. He was actually Laos. It was uh, Idean, you know, shout out to Idean running as much as he could in Wisconsin. Um, and then the whole Minnesota thing was just, you know, next level. Like there was like, you know, if you ever type in Hmong Freedom Festival or July 4th flag football, you will see like videos and hundreds and hundreds of videos all over YouTube about it because it was a very huge event, you know, still is to this day. Um, it's basically three, three, it's a 99, three linemen and uh, everyone else is just with flags, right? The three linemen literally like talking about no pads, full on blocking, you know, guys coming out with scars and just, you know, getting beat up. You know, I shout out to the O-line and D-line for doing what they have to do battling there. But, man, there's some talents out there. I'm, I'm telling you guys, like, it just – it's mind-blowing. It's like, like, 
imagine i always talk to them, I'm like dude just imagine yourself putting on yourself pads like you do you feel like you could do it they're just a lot of people ah, you know i don't see myself or you know coach will never give me a chance it's like man don't hide behind you know your shortcomings just go out there and ball out because you never know what's going to happen right so yeah. so so does do any of the teams obviously you don't have to be mung to play you're not mung um, but do any teams try to bring in ringers like some guy who just got cut from the nfl or you know <laughs> Uh, so golly, that's a funny question because, um, like I said, some, some, so, so the rivalry I had was with uh, a team called Black Venom. And the reason why Black Venom was the biggest rivalry, they had the one of this amazing athlete, Waheem Bird. Waheem Bird, now, uh, I believe he was a Minnesota local. I don't know much of his history, but I just know Waheem Bird because him and I actually had a Green Bay Blizzard trial together. And um, well, he was just on a different level, man. This dude, like, was one like probably like six two, six three with cleats, like literally can probably jump like you know outside of like a sixty inch vert. I mean, I'm I'm just making it, but like that guy looked like he could fly. He was just a different beast, right? So that was I thought, you know, I thought they brought the first ringer, but then you know we <laughs> we were known for being being bringing the ringers ourselves, but it was because the monk population Kansas wasn't that big as Minnesota. Yeah. Minnesota, you know, they have it. They have every all thirteen clans, right? And like, like, um, kind of answering your question, but you know, like, uh, can non Asians play? There is a rule. It is, there is a actually rule. It's a three non Asian per team type, on the field type thing. Um, but yeah, you know, we our quarterback was always non Asian, and one of our best players was always non Asian. You know, can't help it when you don't have enough Hmong people. So, yeah, well, not non Hmong, just non Asian. Right? Non Asian, right? Okay. Yeah. 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 Interesting. What, yeah, I didn't know. what percent? What percent of like the league would you say? Uh, would be like non non Asian, just out of curiosity. Because because here me like as, as like an, as a spectator as an outsider, I'm thinking well, among football league. I am thinking like I'm, I'm even thinking defining all... and placing it because we could like bring Malachi Moore, Tyson Pomachan, you know AJ Vonquachan. <laughs> we could put a team together well, that could just destroy. <laughs> which which you know what I honestly say this. I say bring them. I always say bring bring your best talents <laughs> because I feel like some people need to understand that like you know like nothing's too short of a goal if you can make it possible yeah. but to answer you about the whole um population like percentage of it i guess it just depends you know like um there there are people like you know like i i don't i don't really pull on the race car like you know like i'm not gonna look at you like hey dude let me see your birth certificate type things but i've seen it happen i've literally seen you know, uh, okay, okay so how, how many people are on the team for so plus how many people are on the team as many as you want 20 30 Right. Well, only like, nine on the field, but if you want to have twenty bench warmers, right, you can have twenty bench warmers. Right. Guess. Right. So for so so for example, for our, our team alone, we average probably about 30, 30 names on roster, or about twenty people show up type thing. So yeah. Okay. So so thirty names. How many out of that would you say are non-Asian? Out of the thirty. For us, uh, I'll just use aftermath for example. For aftermath, we would have thirty names on the list. Non-Asians, uh, we would probably have like eight. Right. Okay. And then you just got to figure out how to do math and rotate them in without breaking yeah. the rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Here, I mean, and the reason why I ask, I'm not to, you know, like not to play, you know, talk about race and all that stuff, but I remember a long time ago I was competing and I went to, uh, went to watch the, the Mr. Asia contest and he was in Hong Kong. Okay. And it's the Mr. Asia. This is like 1999, 2000 and there there was there was a black guy that competed right and he didn't win and, and it, uh, a chinese guy won from hong kong won and i and i remember literally the black guy saying like why didn't i win and one of the judges say 
the one of the judges said to him, because you're because you're not Asian, you know, and th- this is what you know, this is what I witnessed at that time. That's just you know, I don't know. I just I just yeah, you know, yeah. why did I, I win? Because you're because you're not Asian. So so it's kind of the no, no, no. I, I love that. I love that analogy because, uh, like I said, my, so Kansas City aftermath. We we are known for not having non-Asians due to the fact because you know our explanation is we don't have a giant Asian population in Kansas. So our entire defense was not from Kansas. Like my brother, like you know, we haven't played together. He's from Wisconsin, and I'm you know I live in Minnesota now. And like our D line wasn't or even from like you know um, from Kansas. So it was like we were literally a giant pickup team that kind of were like a lot of teams that kind of fell apart. Were like, hey, who still wants to play ball? Like, oh, I do. Oh, okay. So like on on top of that, our defense. Like I said, they're all from out of state. So how many times do we practice? Probably like, you know, once a month type thing. I'm like, all right, does everyone still know the calls from 15 years ago? Yeah, I do. All right, cool. That's how we're going to run. Never changed our defense. Ran the same cover three for 15 plus years. <laughs> so, I mean, it is what it is, you know. But, like, you know, it was beautiful because I, I what I enjoyed about that whole aspect of it is it's like we were always the waiting, right? Like anytime we showed up in Minnesota or anytime we showed up in Wisconsin, we were always the hated team because, like, oh, they don't have enough – you know, Asian, but like, I don't think that was how they really thought, but you know, but I, that was my speeches. I would tell our group just so we can fire. Uh, no, they take it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I've been in the Asian community for long enough. I, that, that, they thought it. Well, well, I mean, all I know is these, these things are cool. I'd love to go check out the tournament or the July 4th freedom festival one day. Um, it's just great that the Hmong community does. It's just to bring everybody together for young people to have something positive, right? To do. See, see, to, like John, right? John. Like the Hmong people have these awesome fests, right? What a lot of people, a lot of people have Sabaiti fest. Well, that's <laughs> all right. That's a start, right? So, Co, we'll organize it, Co. That's all I could say, right? So, Co, I think I've said this to you because I, you know, I thought you, I thought you were uh, the chat I was talking about. I honestly believe that representation truly should start mattering more. And I feel like it is for a lost community because the Hmong community, right? They always state that they didn't have a country and all that stuff, but like, they're so intergrained inside Minnesota. Like, it's unbelievable. They have a place here called Hmong Village. They have, like, a place here, mm-hmm. you know, Hmong Freedom Festivals. Like I said, the 13 clans. Like, I know more about Hmong history just because it's so invested into yeah. this than I know about my own history, right? So then that's when I realized, like... It's like they have a chip on their shoulder, and that's why they are as united as they are. And I think it's great. I do, too. I, lived, I agree. I lived, up, I lived up in Wisconsin, and, man, when I went to the gym, I had more interaction with with the Hmong uh, bodybuilders that I did with the Lao. There weren't even that many Lao bodybuilders when I was up there. It was a bunch of Hmong guys, and, and they loved it, man. And, you know, they respected me. They didn't say I was, a, you know, like that fucking Laotian guy. No, they just they respected me, and I, I got along great with them, man. But I've always respected, and I'm, John and I have talked about it, man. There's, there's more unity in the Hmong community, and I wish the Laotian population would have, you know, more more unity yeah i um so i know you i i see behind john that he has andre uh andre uh you know back there like i'm made for right like dude literally as a laos like uh and you know ex uh, ufc fighter and all that and it's just like like when i was in kansas watching him i used to ask people I was like you know y'all hear about this guy asian dude you know a laos student you know Pacific? They're like yeah well, like what about him like and i that like that like don i'm like i was like aren't you guys like you know you guys are from laos descent yourself like aren't you proud of that or like like, why don't we like support them the way the Hmong people support Hmong people? Like, you yeah. know, I understand what I was saying, but then I realized I realized something too that at the age of fifteen, when I moved to um to Kansas, I also 
you know, was like one of the very few persons to ever leave Kansas under my own tuition to play sports. And all. like, I took, I took a Greyhound from Kansas to go back to Green Bay to play one of the football tournaments still, you know? And like, at the time when I did that, that's when I first heard of, um, a Kansas team going up there. And my brother's like, you know, there's a Kansas team up here right now. Their pseudo name, it was Aftermath, but they were called Killer Breeze at the moment. I'm like, no, I didn't know that. And, you know, he goes, well, you maybe you should see if you can get a ride back as a joke, you know. And then a year later, I go find out, like, it was really them. I was like, oh, guys, you know, I was actually there too. Like, how'd you get there? I took a Greyhound. It took me two and a half days to get there, you know. But, yeah. um, But saying all that, like, I feel like, yeah, like, there's just there's just not a big support when it comes to, like, um, you know, Laos athletes for some reason. I just, and I never understood that, you know. And, and, that's and that's why, why we, John, and that's why John and I created a Loud America Sports Hall of Fame, right? To bring yeah. like awareness, like we exist, man, we exist, guys, and yeah, you know, I mean, Co knows the story. My family's Italian, and we have an Italian American Sports Hall of Fame right here in Chicago, and the, and with my daughter excelling in swimming and all that, and I seeing how proud you know her family was on the Lao side. That's when I told Co, I said we. We, you, you guys did the same thing on the Lao side, so we started it, and here we are. And, and, and so you know, we're trying and to change. What's, it. And what's going to happen in a couple of months at the Sea Games with this representation yep. of Laos, man? Hopefully, this is like the beginning, right? Like this is the the flame that that you know blows everything up, man. I mean, it's just we have great athletes of Lao descent, you know, and and it's just it, yeah. they're unheard of. And and I, I'll be honest, sometimes, man, you feel. I know when I was growing up and I was doing my bodybuilding, I felt like an outcast. I I didn't feel like, no, I didn't get much respect, uh, uh, like uh, support from the Lao community. Um, and it kind of made me work harder. It, it, it pissed me off. You know, I was like, well, you know, F, I'm going to, I want to, I don't want to be the best Laotian bodybuilder. I want to be the best period, you know? And I just like, and that was my, that was my goal is my focal point. And, you know, I mean, I did achieve pro status. I competed at, at the highest level. Um, but yeah, man, I wish it would have been, I wish there would have been more support. I would have like appreciated that. Jeez, I would have appreciated talk, talking about my story. I wish my mom, you, you mentioned yeah. your mom, right? I mean, trying to, to prove her wrong, man. Like, man, I'm sick of hearing you don't believe in me. I'm sick of hearing you saying I'm not big enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm going to prove you wrong, man. It's just like what you said earlier, man. You know? Yeah. I, uh, you know, he, he, you know, like, like, uh, if you don't mind me asking, how, how old are you? I'm 51. So like that, right? Like I'm, I'm 31, 20 years of a difference, but it's like, I never knew that people around, you know, your age group, like thought like that because like, I never understood. Cause like my, when my stepdad, so what I realized that when my stepdad moved to Kansas, it's because he was going back to his community of people because, you know, again, like I said, I'm Kamut. So my whole family in Wisconsin was Kamut and whatnot. But my mm-hmm. dad, you know, you know, you know, he, he was friend of the family type stuff too. But like when he moved down to Kansas, you know, he actually literally, literally said, like, oh, I'm moving because, you know, one of my buddies helped me with this. You know, I, I love my side because, you know, he, you know, left for three years, got, you know, did really well in his occupation, get us a, a home to go live in down there and move his family mm-hmm. down to there. You know, I, I'm a sibling of eight, you know, so I have. Wow. These, okay. Yeah. So. Um, I should have mentioned it, but uh, my three eldest siblings stayed in Wisconsin, and then I left with the younger group. So I had to grow up really quick. You know, I had to be. So you're, you're number four. So, I'm the last one of my real dad. Yeah. So you're the oldest of the younger group. You are the leader of the younger group, huh? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, man, like, so when that had happened, like when I moved down there, like I met this guy named uh, Juju, who uh, uh, Laos dude. 
who took care of me right off the back, man. He like, he just like, Hey man, you know, welcome to Kansas. I'll show you around type thing. And he was a like, man, I, I love him to death to this day. You know, he did so much for me. Guy was, he was, he was about, you know, and height wise, I didn't mean to chuckle, but he's like five, five, but like, I was so skinny. I used to fit his clothes. So like, cause I didn't, I didn't come down here with a lot of stuff when I moved on. Cause you know, we moved in a, uh, in a Honda Accord from all the way green Bay down to Kansas, right? 10 hour drive. So I didn't bring a lot of stuff. So this dude's like, Hey bro, you're about my size. Take my clothes. You know? So I love him to death for doing that for me. But yeah, man, I, I drove, I drove from Chicago to LA in a Honda Civic, man. So it's, it's <laughs> they're good for, they're good for road trips. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely are. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, we're kind of coming up on the hour here. So co any last questions or party comments for John? Uh... No, I mean, not, not off the top, top of my head. I don't know if you have anything. Um, I wasn't even going. Um, I know you always ask, John, you always ask a question about, like, what type of advice he could he could give, right, to just, I don't know, like, uh, 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 let's say there, there's let's say there's a 12-year-old a kid that wants to play sports. He wants to, and he's loud. He's yeah. 12 years old now, and, and he wanted, he has his dream of being in the NFL. What type of advice would you give him? Yeah, I think the best advice I could give him is like, honestly, man, first thing is foremost, and I 100% would back this as focus on your education first. Sports will be there if you put the effort and work into it. But honestly, if you want to get to the next level, they do look at your education. I feel like that's something that I didn't realize, you know, uh, so like really get a good GPA that you can pass. Great. But no, I'll also like, man, just work hard because like there are going to be those naysayers in the gym that are going to look at you for what you are. And that's what it is, man. You're an Asian American. They're like, they're going to doubt you, but like, you know, just humbly accept that what you are and just get ready for the next adventure because you know in all reality you gotta start in the lab and the lab is going to be where you put the work in so your gym you know and then just honestly be ready mentally and how can you be ready for mentally i mean you just gotta honestly ride the waves man don't take everything too seriously what people are gonna uh, say to you so that's what i live by and till this day i still go with that so i, I tell you that advice you gave right there which you would be given to me at at my young age of 11 or 12 because me now keep in mind i came in 75 right boom we, we land in the states we land in lima ohio and right as we walk out the door you know f you get the fuck out of here fucking you know chink gook slant eye yellow bird whatever right and it's just you don't fucking belong here get the fuck out of our country right so i was four I was four years old. So it was kind of like hard to not take it personally, right? I mean, it's just like, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I wish I would not have been so angry. Now, if I could give myself, my 12-year-old self, some advice, I would say that, man. Like, just like you said, don't take it, don't take it to heart. Definitely don't, don't let that anger build up inside, right? Because that, that was my... I don't know if you know about my story, but there was success, but there was also destruction. And and I I I didn't explode, I imploded, right? Everything I just destructed from from within. So yeah, I, I, I love it. Yeah, that's great advice, man. I mean, easier said than done though. You know? Yeah, yeah, easier absolutely. said than done. Yeah. All right. Well, great that's a great interview. Speaking of Co's story, if you want to hear it, go on to Projector. That's projector with a K. And you can rent his movie, Fallen Star, Rising Sun, and check it out. Um, we encourage you all to do that. With that said, that wraps up another episode of the C4 Podcast. Thanks, John, for coming on. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. The C4 Podcast is brought to you by the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame. Visit us on the web 
at LowAmericanSports.com, celebrating the first, inspiring the next.